Hello and welcome back to another episode of What Do Scientists Do? This is a show where we talk to wickedly smart guests and learn all about their favorite science topics. We also learn about what they do in their job and how they got there. My name is Mav and today I got to talk to Mike Kelland. He teaches us all about how we can use the ocean to tackle climate change. We learned about something called ocean acidification and we learned about how to come up with creative solutions. We answered questions like, why are we giving the ocean an antacid? Why was the Halifax Harbor dyed pink? And what does boiled red cabbage have to do with all of this? Let's find out. Hello, and welcome back to What Do Scientists Do? This is a show where we talk to expertly smart people and guests and learn all about what they do and what science has got to do with it. So today we're actually going to be talking about the ocean and climate change, two of my favorite science things. Um, and you've probably heard of the ocean before, but did you know it actually covers 70% of the planet? So everybody on the planet lives on only about 30% of this planet. We use the ocean for so much. We use it for fishing, transportation, tourism, surfing, personally. But we can also use the ocean to help combat climate change. So we're actually going to talk about that a little bit today. So hi, thank you so much for being here. Do you want to introduce yourself with your name, pronouns, and what you do? Sure. Uh, my name is Mike Kelland. I am, uh, my pronouns are he, him, and I am the CEO and one of the co-founders of a company called Planetary Technologies, uh, and also a surfer. So, you know, all about the ocean from that perspective, for sure. I love surfing. I love being on the ocean. I love connecting with the ocean. It can do so much for us. So what kind of science does your company do? Uh, so what we do as in terms of science is something that is a really, to me, exciting field of science. And it's basically working at the uh, intersection or at the uh, edge of where the atmosphere meets the ocean. And we work there because the atmosphere and the ocean are really connected in terms of how they affect climate change. So climate change, as we know, is caused by all of this extra CO2 that we have in the air. But what a lot of people don't understand is that the ocean and the atmosphere are not separate systems. They're, they're really linked really closely. And when it comes to carbon dioxide in particular, they're kind of like mirrors of each other. So whenever we have an emission, right? So whenever we burn fossil fuels and we put more CO2 into the air, some of that CO2 is actually going to dissolve into the ocean in order to balance the two systems because they're, they're, they're perfectly connected that way. And they're always gonna find balance with each other. And, um, and so that's the field of science we work in. So one of the big you know, things on the earth is that there's a lot of these kind of carbon cycles that happen. And you've got you know, sort of carbon cycling from one, what they call reservoir or one place that, that carbon lives on the earth to another over certain time periods. And one of those cycles that we know really well is this cycle of um, plants, right? So this idea that, you know, when we grow a tree, it's going to photosynthesize and it's going to pull all the CO2 out of the air in order to form its, its trunk and its leaves and all these kinds of things. And then eventually all the CO2 that's pulled out of the air when that tree dies uh, or is burned or, you know, has insect damage and like falls over or whatever and decomposes, all of that CO2 it's captured is then going to be returned back to the air. And so it's, you know, that, that natural sort of, you know, biological cycle for carbon is pretty quick 
it happens really fast. There's other carbon cycles though that a lot of people don't know as well. And they're more sort of geological carbon cycles. So they don't have anything to do with biology. They don't have anything to do with growing and, and you know photosynthesis or living things cycling carbon, but they have to do with geology. And the big sort of geological carbon cycle that works really slowly and like is, is like grindy, like rocks, like is, is that um, how that how that geological cycle works is that you get rain dissolving CO2 out of the air. And as it does that, because CO2, when it gets into water, becomes acidic, it actually goes down and dissolves a little bit of the top of rocks around the world. And as it does that, it it neutralizes all that CO2. So that acidic CO2, those rocks act like an antacid. And it forms uh, bicarbonate. You might know bicarbonate by its other name, which is baking soda. And a lot of it ends up going through rivers and streams and all this kind of stuff and ends up in the ocean. And so uh, as that bicarbonate flows into the ocean, it lives in the ocean for a period of time in the chemistry of the oceans, like dissolved in the ocean, just like you can dissolve um, baking soda. And after a period of time, it eventually sort of settles out on the bottom, turns into rocks again, and then, you know, gets goes through tectonic action and ends up back on the surface again. And that cycle's like really, really slow. If, if the biological cycle for carbon from atmosphere to plants to wherever else that goes and back to the atmosphere again is on the order of, you know, one to a hundred years, the geological cycle is millions of years. And so we get this sort of really slow, really uh, slow cycle. In that cycle, that carbon lives in the ocean for about 100,000 years in, in that time frame. So from a human perspective, like it's forever, like it's the, you know, more than the history of humanity that'll live in, in the chemistry of the ocean. So that cycle is what kind of, you know, counterbalances this cycle where the atmosphere uh, dissolves carbon dioxide into the ocean. And the problem that we're in right now, one of the biggest issues that we're facing from a climate change perspective is that because we've put so much extra CO2 in the air, that really slow geological cycle just can't keep up. It's just not able to balance properly all of this extra CO2 in the air and put it through that geological cycle and put it back where it kind of should be, which is, you know, living properly in the ocean in the right ways. And, and so that, you know, all of that drives out a bunch of different issues, but the biggest one is what's called ocean acidification. So you remember I said CO2, when it dissolves into the ocean or into water, it becomes acidic. When we've got this extra CO2 in the air and it's balancing out that mirror effect between the atmosphere and the ocean, all of that CO2 going into the ocean causes it to become a lot more acidic. And so our oceans at this point are about 30% more acidic than they should be. And it's starting to affect, you know, sea life and all this kind of stuff. And it's a real challenge. So that's the field we work in. And that's sort of this geological carbon cycle field in the ocean field. What we're doing is something that's like, in a way, incredibly simple, which is that, you know, what do you do when you have too much acid? Well, you get an antacid, you know, it's just like you have a stomach ache and you've got too much acid in your stomach and you're getting reflux or acid reflux. You have a Tums or you have a, a Rolaids and you put that, you know, there and it, it neutralizes that acid. We're doing exactly the same thing, but in the ocean, the ocean kind of has indigestion right now. And we're adding that antacid into the ocean in order to cure its indigestion. 
And what that does is it replicates that big geological grindy process. It basically neutralizes that extra CO2 just in the same way as it would on rocks, but much more quickly because we're using a, a you know, very pure um, form of antacid rather than rocks, which are made up of all kinds of stuff and are very slow. We're using a much purer form, so it happens much more quickly. When we do that, it's taking all this extra CO2 that's dissolved into the ocean, neutralizing it so it's no longer acidic and makes it slightly basic actually, and keeping it in that sort of 100,000 year, 100, year cycle within the ocean. But the neatest thing about all of that is that because now we've reduced the amount of CO2 in the ocean, and because the atmosphere and the ocean are kind of like mirrors of each other, the CO2 in the air is now gonna come, there's more room now in the ocean. So it's gonna come out of the air and come into the ocean. So the simple act with all of that explanation and all of that sort of, you know, big cycles and like where the, you know, geological cycle goes and all this stuff, the really simple, simple, simple of this is if you add an antacid to the ocean, it's going to pull carbon dioxide out of the air into the chemistries of the ocean as a natural form of sort of part of the chemistry of the ocean. And it's going to live there for a hundred thousand years. So that's sort of the process that we're working on and, and how our, technology and science works. That's fantastic. So the last episode that came out or will have come out is actually about climate change adaptation. And I talked to our last guest about how trees are a great place to do something called carbon sequestration. So that's when carbon is stored in trees. So it sounds like this is the same kind of thing, except instead of trees on land, it's with carbon in the ocean. Is that kind of accurate? That's exactly right. And so if we think about planting a tree, you know, that's a deliberate act that we do to pull carbon dioxide out of the air and hold that carbon dioxide for some period of time inside another form so that it's not causing climate change. And that's exactly what you're saying, which is which is sequestration. I think that's that's what that is. In the ocean, exactly the same way, we're taking a deliberate action to pull carbon dioxide out of the air and store it in another form. The bit of a difference here is that, like I said, when you start using the geological carbon cycle, which is the other natural carbon cycle on Earth, you just have a lot longer of a time frame for that storage. So carbon dioxide lives in our atmosphere on average for between sort of 300 and 1,000 years. So if I sequester carbon within a tree, I've done something really good because I've taken that carbon dioxide out of the air and I've, I've reduced the effect of that from a climate change perspective. But I have to be really sure that I'm maintaining those trees and that if one of them dies, that I plant another one, that I keep that carbon in that form over a long period of time. With the ocean, we don't have that problem. We know that we're going to have that storage in the ocean for 100,000 years. And so we can do it once and forget about it. And no matter what happens to that land and how that land changes hands or whether somebody is maintaining that carbon within those trees or, or any of those kinds of things, we still have that permanently taken away from the atmosphere and we can sort of continue to do that. And so that's really the big difference in terms of sequestration. And in the carbon world, we call that permanence, right? So, you know, what is your permanence of that sequestration? For a tree, it could be 20 to 50 years, depending on, you know, how that's managed. For the ocean, we're talking about 100,000 years. And so we're sort of setting ourselves up for a longer time frame for that sequestration. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like we're setting ourselves up for success down the road. If we are taking the carbon out of the atmosphere, it means, you know, maybe we mitigate a bit of 
um, global warming and the greenhouse effect, which is very cool. It's also this idea of climate change adaptation. So instead of, you know, trying to reduce our emissions, we're trying to deal with what we have and how it's going to get worse in the next couple of years. But if we're doing stuff like this, maybe it'll reduce those impacts and stuff. And this is really important, right? Adaptation. We know that climate change is going to happen, right? There's no stopping right now the warming that's kind of like already locked in to the system. So we have to adapt to changing conditions. And that's one of the things that we're going to have to do. We have to do mitigation, which is what this is, is like they call it adaptation mitigation, which is actually removing uh, carbon dioxide from the air as well. Uh, and then we have to do reduction. So we have to reduce our emissions. And that's actually the most important thing we have to do is all of this, you know, sequestering carbon and pulling it out of the air is not really going to do anything unless we can also simultaneously massively reduce the emissions. So one question that I also kind of like to ask when we're talking about climate change and climate change solutions is how does creativity play into these ideas and these solutions? Because it is a very creative process, you know, like we're thinking about using the ocean to do what it's meant to do, but where does creativity come into that? So creativity uh, is necessary on so many different levels with these kinds of things, right? I've always felt like when you approach a new field and you're looking at something from scratch, it always seems very, it's got a facade, if you will. It's got, a, it's, it's, it's big, it's flat. And you say, what's the creativity in here? Oh, the creativity is we can use an antacid to cure, you know, to help heal the ocean's acidification problem and, you know, adapt to those climate change issues, as you said before, and also pull carbon out of the air and mitigate, you know, some of the future effects of climate change. And that's sort of the big creative idea there. But when you dig in like, and start to try to actually do it is when you get into this like mode of finding out all the little creative things that you have to do along the way to make it work. And so every day we're figuring something new out that we're like, oh, what about this? And what about that? And how do we solve this problem? And sometimes it's that you're solving problems. You're like, oh, uh, you know, we had an issue where it was like, a pump wasn't working properly because the way that it was designed wasn't quite right. And so we had to design a creative solution to try to make sure that that pump could do its job and, and operate properly. Uh, we had a problem with a shelter for this antacid that was supposed to protect it from the weather and it didn't work. So we had to very quickly, you know, find a different solution and, and, and figure out how to make that work. And these little things actually add up to being some of the more creative solutions that you come up with. And then beyond that, you know, there's a lot of creativity in progressing forward um, as well. So sometimes you're solving problems to do what you had planned to do in the first place in a more creative way or to, or to fix an issue that's come up. But some of the creativity comes from saying, oh, wait a second, what do we want to learn here? And what's the best way to learn it? So for example, the other day, uh, one of our team members, we were, we were doing these very in-depth uh, sediment surveys where we're looking to see you put this antacid into the ocean, does it settle on the bottom of the seafloor? And if it does, how long does it stay there before it dissolves as it's supposed to and all that kind of stuff? So we're looking at this stuff and we were doing samples and it's expensive. You put a boat out and like, you know, you've got to have people there and they've got to go down and pull a little core of sediment out of the bottom of the ocean. And one of our team members said, well, actually, maybe we could do this more effectively uh, by using a GoPro camera and a little rig I could build out of like, you know, pieces of tubing. And then we could just drop it over the side offshore and look at the sediment and see if there's anything there and then pull it back up again. And we can do that, you know, 10 times a day rather than having to have a whole like expedition go out and do it once a week. 
And so little creative ideas like that around how you improve your efficiency, get better data, um, learn more quickly, uh, accomplish you know, bigger outcomes. There's always room for creativity in every aspect of, of the work we do. I love that. I think that's a fantastic example of also like thinking outside of the box, the ability for different team members to have different strengths. And I know you have a background in electrical engineering, right? That's so that's right. kind of like a different way to think about problems and come up with different solutions and having really diverse ways to come up with solutions. It's a very cool example. So as a CEO, I know you've probably had your like a couple different projects in your life. Um, so what is your role as a CEO and like an engineer? What do you do? So uh, CEO is an interesting job because it's a job that is, is it's difficult to define exactly what what you do as the CEO of a company. And it really depends on the company itself. Every different CEO or founder, you know, entrepreneurial role that I've had uh, has been different. And the stage of the company really makes a difference as well in terms of what you do. Um, so, you know, in this company, I have a bunch of different jobs. Uh, I will be responsible for kind of the things that you might expect, right, around a CEO, which would be making sure that we build a really strong team culture and hiring the right people onto the team at the executive level to build that culture so that we have, you know, a highly creative culture where everybody can bring their brain to work and fully utilize their brain in what they do, right? Because I, I strongly believe that the culture is going to dictate how much, how much you can get out of people, right? If you, if you really empower people to go out and like be creative and do their own things, then you're going to create an environment where you're using everybody's brain, not just the leader's brain, right? At the end of the day. So there's a lot of that kind of work that you get into as a CEO uh, around uh, building the culture and hiring the right people and, you know, keeping that on track. And then there's a lot of work that you do around being a spokesperson for the organization as well, right? So getting out and doing these, these kinds of things and talking to people uh, and understanding uh, where things go. There's a lot of work that you do around trying to figure out with your team what the strategy of the organization should be. So where uh, should you focus? Where should you partner? Where should you build? Where should you um, you know, get other people to do things. Uh, what is your core activity as a company and, and what are you going to provide as the value to the industry? Um, so there's a lot of that kind of thing. Um, as a CEO, I find that I, I spend most of my time learning, uh, a lot of listening, a lot of learning, a lot of talking to people so that you understand what it is that's going on uh, so that you can make good decisions or you can propose good decisions for your team. And on top of all of that in a startup, you know, you get involved in everything. If we have somebody who is too busy uh, within the company, which happens all the time, we're a very small team trying to do a very big mission with a lot of, a lot of moving parts and a lot of things that we're trying to do, uh, you pitch in and you jump in and you try to help out wherever you can. So I've spent time this week writing proposals. I've spent time writing software. So actually one of my first loves was, was computer programming and I loved writing software. So we don't have a software developer right now. We need to write some software. So I've been spending some time actually building software uh, products for us and, and writing code. You, you get involved in, in all kinds of different things uh, as, as a CEO. And I think that's why I like it, especially early stage entrepreneurial CEO is like, there's no definition for the job. 
your job is to make the company successful in whatever way you can and to support the people that you have in making sure that they're as successful as they can be uh, across the board. And uh, there's no right or wrong in terms of the type of work that you end up doing. That sounds really fun. And somehow between all those different jobs, hopefully trying to find some time to go surfing at some point. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a while. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So another question for you here, what's your like favorite science or industry thing that you've done or like experience or story? In science and industry, I mean, in science, this is the most interesting thing that I've done by a wide margin. I, I am so excited about the work that we're doing. I'm so passionate about it. Climate change to me is like one of these things that it's, it's, uh, it's an infinite game. You know, it's one of these things where you, where you're never done. There's, there's always going to be work to do on climate change and the amount that we work on it and the amount that we focus on it right now, as early as possible is going to make a really big difference in the future. And, uh, I, I look around, I, you know, I feel like we've lost a lot already. Uh, with there's a potential to lose a lot more. And it really uh, ignites my passion to be able to be working on this in a way that is direct. You know, we're not working in a way that's indirect on climate. We're not sort of trying to do one thing and trying to be sustainable at the same time, which is a really good thing to do, right? Like we need everybody to be thinking about climate change and everything that they do. But for me, being able to work directly on the problem, I think is, is amazing. And being able to engage with this science. What we are doing right now I think, you know, we started the company four years ago. And when we started the company, I think people thought we were crazy. They're like, you want to do what in the ocean? Like, how does that even work? What is that? Like, nobody even knew what that was. And the responses that we had at the time from serious people who've been working in climate for a very long time was kind of like, yeah, you know, what you're trying to do here is 10, 15, 20 years away because all of these other things are the important things right now and what you're doing is too hard or you know too far out and all those kinds of things what we've predicted accurately is that this the climate problem is worse than people at the time really thought right and we've been delaying climate action for a very long time right we should have been solving this problem 30 years ago at which point what we're doing would have been crazy if we had been working on this properly 30 years ago on climate what we're doing would have been unnecessary and insane. Unfortunately, we're not there. And so what we're doing now is inevitable. It has to happen, uh, or at least it has to be fully explored, I should say. Not it has to happen, but it has to be fully explored. And we have to see if it's possible because as you said at the start, the earth is 70% ocean. We're not gonna solve a global climate problem without involving the ocean in some way or another. And so being involved in the science on that, being able to be engaged in a field that is on a frontier where it's evolving incredibly rapidly, literally every day, uh, is really, really interesting. And it's a huge challenge, right? Every day we're redefining how we provide value within that ecosystem because more people are coming in, more science is being done, more research is coming in. And we're trying to find you know, always trying to find our way to how we continue to to contribute in a in a positive way. And I think we've done that really effectively, but it's it's so exciting to be on the forefront of something and and to have those those you know sort of exciting challenges and all of that kind of stuff. So I would say that's like for me, science and stuff, I 
you know, in terms of a story, I don't know. We've got a million stories. We could go down all kinds of entrepreneurial silliness if you want. But um, for me right now, this science and this work and the, you know, the amount that I've learned about ocean science over the last four years running this company has been phenomenal and it's been super interesting. But I will say this, there's a reason that I became an entrepreneur in the first place. And I've been an entrepreneur. I've started my first company. I think I was 12 years old and we started a lawn care company way back when. So I've always been sort of passionate about this. Entrepreneurship is difficult and it can be very lonely, right? Because you are trying to do something that most people will be like, yeah, that's not possible or you can't do that or, or whatever. You fail more often than you succeed. Uh, I often liken it a little bit to being a celebrity chef where you probably shouldn't do it unless you really like cooking right? Because not everybody gets to be Gordon Ramsay. Not everybody gets to be, you know, Mark Zuckerberg in this, in the entrepreneurial space. So you have to love it for what it is or else you, you can't do it. And for me, the thing I love about it is that it gives me access to opportunities to learn that I would not get otherwise. Nobody's going to sit down with me. Nobody who's a leader in the field of oceans and climate is going to sit down with, you know, a random electrical engineer in Canada and spend, you know, tons of time explaining to him how all of this works, right? But by forming a company around it and by creating a platform for my own learning with that, I'm able to really accelerate something that I, I have a huge amount of interest in and a huge passion about. So that, that was the reason for me to be an entrepreneur and a CEO in this space is to build that platform for learning about the things that I'm truly passionate about. And having that focus and having that ability to do that allows you to do that difficult, messy, you know, often underappreciated, lonely job and still be excited about it and still be engaged with it and all of those kinds of things. So that's for me, what being a CEO, what being an entrepreneur really is all about. Yeah, and I think, I mean, that in itself is a great story. Like. As an entrepreneur and a CEO, you, I mean, it sounds like you see a problem and then you start to figure out a solution, talk to other people about a solution and then kind of keep working away at it. So that, that sounds like a story to me. <laughs> so just kind of wrapping up here, I guess, one other question is what's one thing that you would want everyone to know about your topic? Like if you could have a billboard across Canada or Turtle Island, or anywhere in the world, what would you want to say on your billboard? Oh, that is a great question. I think my billboard, I've got like a thousand of them. I, 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 think that, I think that if I was to try to succinctly bring it down to one line, it would be something like, we won't solve climate change without the oceans. I think that's probably what I would say. The biggest thing that I want to tell everybody in the world, if I could, would be the surface of the ocean, the beauty of the ocean, and how pristine it looks when you look over it, is a mirage. Our oceans are under attack right now, and they're heavily impacted by climate change. The, the amount of heat that the oceans absorb, it's about 90% of the extra heat from CO from, from climate change. All of this acidity that's going into them, it's really negatively affecting that ecosystem. And we can't be complacent. If you look at the ocean and you consider it to be this pristine environment that we should never touch, what you're denying is the fact that we are touching it and we are changing it and we are, you know, destroying it in so many different ways. And it's fundamentally irresponsible 
to make a giant mess and not be willing to clean it up. And so I think that's one of the key messages that's difficult. It's a hard message because I think we, we have a, a, you know, a vision or a view of the ocean, which is like, okay, this is, you know, just don't touch it, but we're touching it. And every time we put a ton of CO2 in the air, we are acidifying the ocean further, we're heating the ocean further, we're destroying corals, we're destroying shellfish and you know, biodiversity and livelihoods. It's too far gone for us to simply step back and say, leave it alone and let it heal. We have to take a, a, a much stronger stance on it. And how we do that is absolutely something we have to do incredibly responsibly, very, very carefully. We have to look at every possible implication of going in and trying to fix that mess before we make any major interventions, before we do anything major. And it's going to take us years to really figure out what's safe, at what scale, what's effective, how it all works. And we're, we're on that journey today. But we can't shy away from that journey. We can't, we can't not go into trying to figure that out and, and, and responsibly doing that work. That's fantastic. I mean, it sounds like if we want to be able to make a change in our oceans, we need to, to step up and actually start to work on them and work with them instead of kind of passively sitting by and hoping that they heal themselves. So thank you so much for your time, Mike. One last science thing for anybody that's listening out there. If you want to try out a little bit of ocean acidification for yourself, there are a couple of different ways you can do that. If you want to test out this whole pH antacid thing, get yourself a Tums or get yourself some baking soda. And you can actually just put that in some vinegar or lemon juice and see what happens um, spoiler alert, it'll start to fizz and create some gases. So there's a lot of really complex chemical reactions happening right there. And that's actually what's happening in the ocean kind of all the time. So that's something you can do at home with parents and guardians and don't get it in your eyes and don't eat it. But, but it's a pretty fun little science experiment. I did this with a, with a school, my kid's school, actually, of another type of ocean alkalinity um, experiment that you can do, which I think is really fun. If you boil red cabbage, you get an indicator dye. And so with that red cabbage dye, you can put that into some water and you'll get a certain color. And then if you then take a straw and you blow into that, you'll actually change color because what's happening is the CO2 in your breath is changing the pH or the acidity of that, of that water and you'll see that change. And then if you take your antacid and you put it in there, you'll have it come back and you may take it too far back, but essentially what you'll do is you'll actually change the color back and forth. So you can actually see that CO2 dissolving into the water through your breath, uh, if you blow into it through a straw for long enough. And then um, you can see that coming back when you add your antacid and your tums into, into that container. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. That was fantastic. Yeah, so just to talk a little bit about the project that's going on in Halifax right now, we've got listeners from across Turtle Island, a couple in Germany as well. But here in Halifax, if you look at the big smokestacks, that's actually where all the water is being pumped out. So you might have noticed a couple weeks ago at this point, a lot of pink dye being put into the Halifax Harbor. And that's not just for the Barbie movie premiere or anything like that. That's actually to model how the water is moving through the Halifax Harbor. This is a great example of a little bit of scientific inquiry. So we're doing, not we, but Mike and his team are doing a science experiment where they're modeling how the water moves through the harbor and how alkaline 
like baking soda pretty much moves through the water if I'm getting this right, Mike. Uh, and then gradually they're gonna add more and more baking soda pretty much uh, just to see how the water is changing and to see if this is something that they can do on a bigger scale. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. And you know, what's neat about this, a couple of different things that are neat about this. If this is a project that's being run uh, in very close partnership with Dalhousie University and, uh, and an organization called Carbon to Sea, which is a, a group of um, philanthropists who are you know, trying to encourage uh, research in this area. So we're working in the harbor, as you said, and yes, there was a pink dye that went out to track where the water moves, which is really important for tracking how the carbon comes out of the air. So we need to know where it goes so that we know how that's working. Uh, and the, the other really exciting thing about it is that this is really the first uh, experiment of its scale uh, and of its kind. Um, so this is the first time in the world ever that we are removing this much carbon from the air. Uh, so just as much as it is an experiment and a field trial uh, run with the university, it's also doing some real good and taking carbon out of the air. So it's, it's a really exciting project. Um, it's really at the frontier. And, you know, if you're interested in ocean science, if you're interested in climate change, I think this type of field is going to be one that is going to be absolutely massive in the future. And it's going to be a place where people, there's still, and there's going to be a lot of work to be done in uh, this area and, and sort of using the ocean or helping the ocean to absorb more carbon dioxide out of the air. So it's a really exciting time and it's a really exciting place in Halifax to be doing it. Yeah, Nova Scotia is a huge place for something called the blue economy. Uh, the green economy is all about, you know, an economy and way of business built around green solutions and sustainable solutions. And the blue economy, if you don't know, is uh, solutions built around the ocean and using the ocean and ocean technologies, which is a very cool thing that's happening here in Nova Scotia and the rest of the Atlantic provinces. And it's really exciting to have this kind of trailblazing experiment here in Halifax that you can actually go and see um, and hopefully will actually help some of the little shelled organisms in the harbor. Not that I'd want to eat any anything that comes from the harbor, but pretty cool that they're healthier. Well, this is a lot of fun. So thanks so much for this. Thank you so much, Mike. A huge thank you to Mike for guesting on the podcast today. And as always, a big, big thank you to everybody listening in the car, at home, on their bikes, wherever you might be listening. For more science fun, you can find us on Instagram and social media at supernova at Dal. Do you have a question that you'd like answered by one of our experts? Send us an email or a voice recording at what do scientists do at superstaff.ca and we might actually just answer your question on the show. Thank you so much for listening and we will see you next episode. Bye-bye for now. This show was made by Supernova at Dalhousie University, a network member of Actua. For more information on our workshops, summer camps, and more, visit supernova.dal.ca.